What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Jeff Smith a former professional musician with no previous winemaking experience impressively created Hourglass now something of a cult wine as you may know almost out of thin air coming out of nowhere to become a major influencer with a unique point of view in the industry Jeff discusses his career shift from musician in a rock band to leading one of the marquee wine brands today. In addition to the entrepreneurial path, Jeff also discusses his inner creative and what he's doing today to bring that out. This episode isn't just for wine lovers. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Jeff, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, of course. Your uh, your wine, I consider legendary. It is uh, top of my list, is all-time favorite. So I'm very excited to talk to you more about the wine, about your career. You've kind of transitioned, had some ups and downs. So this is going to be an exciting conversation. Absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate the uh, the thought there. Yeah, let's start at the origin story. So, I mean, you've said Hourglass began at the dinner table. That's where the hook was set for you. How, how did that begin? How did your love and fascination for wine begin at the dinner table at an early age? Yeah, so um, I had this really incredible, um, fortunate childhood of being able to grow up in Napa Valley around the dinner tables of a lot of the transformative people who sort of filtered into the Napa over the years. And if you consider the Napa wine industry or the American wine industry, for that matter, that it really kind of kicked off in earnest uh, here in Napa Valley. And we've got, you know, probably a 50-year um, uh, history, really, of, of, of the modern wine industry. And I've got a, gotten to have a front-row seat for really the whole evolution of modern winemaking in, in America, right here sort of at the heart of Napa Valley. My family had moved here in 1964 when I was a year old, and if you could imagine Napa Valley in the 60s, it was a really different place than it is today. It was um, very bucolic, kind of a sleepy backwater of the Bay Area, quite beautiful, but um, from a from a winemaking standpoint, the, the industry hadn't really taken off yet. And it would, uh, over time, uh, eventually explode into what it is today. And that was sort of, it happened in a, a, a variety of, of different ways and a, a whole sequence of different ways, but really eventually a lot of really interesting people, entrepreneurs and, um, uh, you know, really creative people and, and people wanting to redirect their lives and, and, and find a new lifestyle began to drift into the valley and pick up the bones of an industry that had been scattered about by prohibition back in 1919. There was a, a really thriving wine industry here 
in Napa Valley in the 1800s. So from the mid-1800s to, to 1919, there I think there were about 200 wineries here. And Prohibition comes in, and it, it just lays waste to an industry. And, and that industry uh, lay dormant, really, until um, – until the mid seventies. And so we, we kind of got here as a family about 10, 12 years before it started to explode and happen. And, and there are a number of different reasons why it happened. We can talk about those if you want to, but um, suffice it to say, this became a very attractive place and it attracted really interesting people. And those people filtered in here and started picking up the bones of this industry and reorganizing them and learning and doing all kinds of different things. And, and uh, I got a chance to sit around the dinner tables of many of those families and, and uh, from a very early age and, and just sort of osmotically soaked it all in. And it just got my pores and eventually led me here. Yeah, no, I love how mid sixties, it kind of became this epicenter, like you mentioned of creativity and entrepreneurship. And, and I want to know some of those interesting people that you were actually at the dinner table with anyone really come to front of mind for you that had just a, such a profound impact on you and your family's trajectory. Yeah. I mean, there, there are, there are many, but uh, one that just really jumps out at me is, um, the Davies family at Shramsburg and, uh, Jack Davies was um, a really dynamic individual. He had um, moved here, moved his family like, very much like my father had had moved us here. They came a couple of years later. So I think they moved, actually, I think it was the next year. I think they moved here in 1965 because I think 66 was the first vintage of Transburg. And um, um, I, I was the same age as, um, as one of the three sons, um, at, uh, of the Davies family. And so I just kind of became the fourth son in, in many <laughs> respects. And they, <laughs> they just, they kind of scooped me up. And, and, um, and so I, I often refer to Shramsburg as my second home. I, I've probably spent as much time up there as I had at my own home. And, and it was, it was around those dinner tables, especially that I got a chance to, um, you know, Really, and this is, I mean, this is, I was really young at this time. So it's not like these were organized thoughts or anything, but it was just sort of the way we grew up. And we didn't think much of it. You just were sort of part of it. And and the normal chatter of, of dinnertime conversation would, you know, sort of drift into the day's events and like what was going on. And, and uh, you know, if somebody was working on planting a vineyard, they'd probably be talking about it. Or if they had, some interesting thing they were doing in the cellar. They might be talking about it. And, and it just, that was the normal kind of flow of conversation. And, and it was, it was really profound. And it, it really, um, it, as I said before, it really set the hook. And I didn't, of course, know it at the time. It's actually taken me a bit of um, retrospective to kind of look back on my own evolution uh, to see how influential and, and how uh, much that really, uh, you know, sort of set the set the trajectory for me. And I, I remember when when we started our last, and I was trying to convince my mom, you know, to to do this crazy thing. And I'm 26, 27 years old. I'd been uh, chasing a music career, and I, I I was living in San Francisco, playing in an indie rock band, and that's kind of what I thought I wanted to be doing. And I was chasing it hard, and and uh, my my father ended up passing away, and and I had to come home and help my mom sort of reorganize um, this little family vineyard that that we had. And we got hit with flocks and we had to pull it out. And and um, and my mom is, you know, asking me, you know, what do you want to do with this thing? And and how should we think about it? And so I, I kind of pitched her on the idea of 
replanning it and and doing a, a label, a wine label that was specifically around this little four acre hillside vineyard that my dad had acquired in 1976. And and he originally planted the Zinfandel, and the Zinfandel vineyard was dying, and my my father had passed away the year before, and mom didn't have any clue as to what to do with it. And and so I, I you know, I'm telling her, I think we should replant it to Cabernet and we should do an estate wine off it. And we should kind of follow this new movement of, of really interesting winemakers that are kind of recharting the course of winemaking in Napa Valley at the time. And, and she looked at me and she was like, you know, why would I do that? You know nothing about farming. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> for the know, confidence there, mom. About <laughs> Yeah, you know nothing about winemaking. It's like you can play, you know, a mean lead guitar, but I mean that's just not going to cut it in the business world. <laughs> and so, you know, it's funny because I look now, I look back on that, and I think I actually knew a lot. And and it's not that I I went I had gone to you know the normal path of getting your enology degree or your your viticulture degree from UC Davis or Fresno or Cal Poly or wherever. Um, that would be the kind of the normal path. I didn't take the normal path, but I had sort of osmotically um, just been a sponge and this, you know, sitting around the dinner tables of these various vintners and, and so forth. There was a lot of knowledge that just kind of soaked in and I, it hadn't, I hadn't organized it. You know, I didn't at 26, 27, I, I didn't have any real clue of what that knowledge was necessarily, nor did I have any, structural organization about like how to form that and bring it all together into a business. Um, but it was there, or at least the foundation of it was there. And it was sitting around those people and being influenced by their magnetism. I mean, these are really charismatic people as guys like Jack Davies or, or uh, Robert Mondavi or uh, Carl Domaney um, at um, Stagfleet Sellers. Um, these are iconic individuals or became iconic individuals and they were super dynamic, really charismatic people, really creative, really visionary. Um, and I guess that all sort of um, just, uh, you know, got I got caught up in all that and certainly influenced by it. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Robert Mondavi. You actually went and worked there for a little bit, didn't you? I did. I, I worked there for three years. I had what was probably considered one of the lowest level jobs there. And to this day... It remains one of the most important jobs I've ever had. And it was a, a really cool time to be there. Um, it was 87, 88, and 89 were the three years that I was there. And I was just working out of the hospitality side. I, I was uh, just kind of, they used me as a utility infielder. It's like, you know, if they needed something, they would just throw me at it. And and I, you know, I was 19, 20 years old at the time when I, when I did that and, and, um, but but it was being able to be kind of a utility infielder and not like being part of the power structure or anything like that. I I was able to just sort of float around the the the, the winery there in, in a variety of different capacities, and it was a very dynamic time. Mondavi was pre-IPO at that point. They they had flirted with being a public company much later, and that changed their their core DNA quite a bit. Um, and so they were. At that point, they were cash rich. They were um, at the very cutting edge of um, of the industry. They were doing a million experiments. They were folding um, really, really high end wine making with um, 
um, food, music, the arts. There was a there was a a whole sort of flashpoint of energies at Mondavi um, that that funneled these different cultural elements um, through the winery, and and so I, I learned how to cook there. Um, I got a, you know, I was, I've always been really into music. My appreciation for music kind of went to the next level there. They were doing a lot of um, jazz with the, with the, uh, the concert series there. And it was a, you know, I was a rock and roll guy. So it exposed me to a whole new genre of music that, that I appreciate to this day. And, and then from a winemaking standpoint, Robert Mondavi was very active in the business at that time. And, and, um, he set the cultural tone for Napa Valley as a whole, but actually being at the epicenter with him, he's a very approachable guy. Um, he was incredibly knowledgeable. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of pretense there in terms of, you know, corporate structure and things of that nature. It was, you know, he, he encouraged everybody to be cross, um, cross trained in all the different departments of the winery. Um, he had a very inclusive manner about him. Um, he, you could ask him any question and he would stop and actually give you time and, and chat with you about it. I remember a couple of times setting up tastings for him and, and, you know, I was just the guy setting up the tasting and he's tasting with, you know, a really powerful wine reviewer or somebody, somebody like that. And, you know, he always used to love tasting the Mondavi wines against the best of the, of the best of Bordeaux. So he'd have me organize all of the Bordeaux first growths. And then he'd pull, you know, the Robert Mondavi reserves and Opus and so forth. And we taste them, he'd taste them side by side. And, you know, then the reviewer would leave and he'd kind of linger behind and, and he'd go, hey, hey, Jeff, you know, what, what do you think about these wines? And, and you know, here I'm like, oh my God, this is Robert Mondavi asking me what I think. <laughs> like, I'm a 20 I'm a year old kid who knows nothing about anything. Like, he actually cares what I think. It's, and he sort of puts me on the spot. I'm like, um, well, you know, the 1982 Chateau Margaux is, is pretty terrific. He's like, oh, yeah, no, I love that one. He goes, what, do you, what do you love specifically about that one? And I'm like, oh, my God. Do I have to now analytically break this down for Robert Mondavi? Oh, my God. <laughs> he goes, oh, yeah, no, I, I, love the, I love the sandy soils of Margaux and, and, and that kind of red-fruitedness. You get that red-fruitedness, Jeff? And I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably one of the few twenty-year-olds so, in the world drinking uh, Chateau Margaux at the time. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, what twenty-year-olds can afford Chateau Margaux? Like, oh my god. <laughs> so um, the exposure, the exposure that I got there was unparalleled, and it was it was in a in a kind of fairy tale sort of dreamy period for Napa Valley, and 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 Mondavi was right there at the at the top of the top of the game. It was very heady, you know, because. The, Amer- the American wine scene was was starting to really flash, and I mean, you look back at at our history; it's not that old, and uh, we haven't been doing this for hundreds of years. I mean, we had, but then prohibition kind of interrupted the whole thing. So um, the new the newbies who are coming in these these people that I referenced before of you know sitting around the dinner table, the Jack Davies of the world and the Carl Zamanis of the world, and and so forth, um, they're not coming at this with generational pass down of knowledge of making wine there. And, and at this point, American food wine culture is not in hyper overdrive. It's, it's really in its most, it's in, it's in, in its infancy, it's about ready to explode, but it hasn't yet. And 
this is a really dynamic, really interesting period. Um, probably you could mark it back to the Judgment of Paris tasting of 1976 as being one of those fulcrum moments that kind of recharted Napa and, and, and elevated it to a status of, of worldwide recognition. And for your listeners out there who, who don't know what the Judgment of Paris is, it was a very influential tasting conducted in, in, in Paris um, in 1976. Um, Stephen Spurrier was a was a British wine merchant who had a little retail shop in in Paris, and he was kind of struggling to sort of figure out um, how to promote his his shop. And he happened to be, I believe, he was on a vacation, or he was here for a wedding, or something like that in California. And he stumbled into Napa Valley and stumbled upon a couple of the of the wineries here, and he was quite shocked at the wines that he was tasting. He thought, Jesus, these are these could rival the best of the French, like this sleepy little backwater place in California where there, there really isn't any wine culture or food culture, or it's kind of the wild west out here. And Oh my God, these wines are incredible. I, I, so he came up with this idea of staging a tasting in Paris and he got um, the top French wines and he got the top French judges and he pitted them against, um, their, their, their Napa Valley rivals in, uh, Cabernet and, and Chardonnay. And he did the, he did the tasting blind. Um, and again, these are all French judges and, and lo and behold, blind tasting and, um, the Americans or the Napa Valley producers win both the red and the white categories, uh, for, for Chardonnay and, and for Cabernet. And the, the French judges were just mystified there. What the heck is going on with this? And uh, there happened to be a um, a writer there uh, for Time Magazine and brought the story back to Time. And Time thought that this was such an important cultural mo- moment in American history that they decided to put it on the cover of Time Magazine, which at that point was the most widely distributed publication in the world. And uh, Napa Valley, here it is, the, you know, the, the, the upstarts beat the best of the best, you know, established French wines. and um, Boy, the spotlight really turned on Napa at that point, and and you could really feel it in a in a short order. And things started to move very rapidly at that point, and you had this evolution of people coming in. And but as I said earlier, most of these people didn't have any experience in wine, and wine's a really complicated thing. It's it's very much a product of its immediate environment. The French refer to this as terroir, and um, so making world class wine is is not a is not an easy thing to do. So to do it from scratch um, without a tremendous amount of history and knowledge to be able to um, put wines on the table that could rival the best in the world was uh, was a profound statement in and of itself. And then how do you do that consistently? And and, and then the movement sort of started there. And, and then the American food culture movement uh, kind of the whole California cuisine thing really was started in, in Northern California, largely in Napa Valley and, and Berkeley and San Francisco. And um, that started to take shape and, and explode. And, and the food and wine revolutions walk hand in hand. They're, they're interlinked. And, you know, so then you roll forward a handful of years and you turn around and look back and go, wow, we covered a lot of ground in a short period of time. 
I mean, do you think that lack of experience was essential to, to putting Napa and Northern California on the map? Because I'm, I'm looking at it as these people don't have the history and the full understanding where they're willing to take risks and maybe go against the grain. Do you think that was essential? You know, that's a great question. It's, I think it's a fundamental question, actually, and I think the answer is absolutely. I mean, naivete uh, has a power to it um, at times. Like, if you knew what you were getting into, you might not do it because, A, it's really hard, it's really complicated, and the risk factors are extremely high. But if you're not really uh, keen on what those risk factors are and how difficult and how timely or excuse me, how much time it would take to, you know, figure all of this stuff out. You might just say, wow, that's too complicated or, or that's too risky or that's too expensive or whatever. And you, you wouldn't do it. And so, yeah, no, to your point, absolutely. Um, that naivete was, um, was a critical part. And then, you know, I think there's also, there are also a couple other elements that are really important to why, Northern California and Napa specifically exploded in the way it did. I think, you know, obviously we're a function of American entrepreneurialism and that can-do spirit. And you think of, I often think of Northern California as being a um, product of, of manifest destiny in many respects. So, you know, as, as North America is being discovered and so forth, um, populations are moving west and who's moving west it, it's usually the 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 oddballs or the the malcontents or the misfits or the you know the thieves or whoever who can't sort of wind together in normal cultural society and so you know if you can't make it in boston society or new york society or vermont or virginia or wherever then then you move a little bit west and you, you kind of get out of the way and and so you just keep moving west until you can't move west anymore. And <laughs> and I think that, that Northern California is a is a function of that sort of westward migration based on you know people risk takers and dreamers and malcontents and misfits and you know criminals or whatever. <laughs> Sort of just getting getting pushed until he can't move, and then they and then they got to figure it out. So you keep moving, but at some point you can't move anymore. So okay, now now you have to sort of congeal as a culture, and you have to sort of figure it out. So I often think that Silicon Valley happened as an outgrowth of that, and and the wine business as we apply it. I mean, our wine business is like no other wine business in the world. We have a very open source um, mentality here, and it's it's very much the same. As uh, as Silicon Valley is, there's um, there's a sharing of information with the belief that um, if you share that information, the greater culture will absorb it and transform it into something exponentially more powerful than than you as uh, as as a solo actor uh, can make it happen. And Robert Mondavi was by far the great champion for open sourcing, uh, and we used to probably still do refer to, to, um, to Mondavi as, as, you know, Mondavi U, you know, it was the university where we all sort of cut our teeth and, and it, it has spawned. I mean, you look at, you look at a lot of the great, uh, wines from Napa and, and most of them are not, maybe not most, but 
but many of them can trace a lineage directly back to Mondavi. And they, and he had this belief that, that the, that the culture as a whole was more powerful than a single actor. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned cutting your teeth there, 86, 87, 88. What was your actual mindset? Did you want to be in the wine industry uh, moving forward? Cause I know then you transitioned to, to San Francisco trying to get the rock and roll career going. So how does that transition transpire? Yeah. When I was, when I was younger, um, wine was, sort of around, as I mentioned, it was, it was around me. I had this sort of osmotic relationship with it. I didn't really realize that I hadn't organized it yet. Um, and, and at that point, my sights were not set on, on, uh, music as a career. I mean, excuse me, as a wine as a career, I, my, my sights were set on music as a career. And that's really what I, what I was pursuing at that time, I, I took a job at Mondavi as sort of a uh, as sort of a way to pay rent while I was while I was trying to get my music uh, career together. And I, I had moved down to San Francisco, and um, I, all through the '80s, I, I had been facing this this music um, music career and this sort of idea of, of launching a rock band. And and I was really into the indie alternative scene in San Francisco, which was a really vibrant music scene at that time. And um, and that, that was my, that was my path. And, and wine was just sort of what I, what I had grown up in. And it wouldn't, it wasn't until a little bit later that I began to kind of form my ideas about, about transitioning into the wine business. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned in 90, your father passed away and then 91 was when you're having these conversations with your mom and you kind of brought the, um, the idea that you could actually do this with, with any lack of experience. So I'm wondering when that actually happens and that conversation takes place, how do you actually make that happen where, you know what, we're going to keep this land and I'm going to make this successful. Yeah. Another good question. Um, so I think there were several energies that were folding on top of each other and they kind of flashed at the, at the same time. I had begun to wonder about the trajectory of me as a musician and what it was going to take or what the um, risk factors were going to be if it didn't, if it didn't work out. Like, so what the hell am I going to do with my life if, if this music thing doesn't work out? And we all know that the music business is really risky. Um, you know, even for super talented people, it's, um, it, it's still a long shot at best. And so as I was maturing a little bit, I was beginning to think, well, okay, you know, we're sort of at this platform. Um, at, at that point, we'd kind of climbed the ladder in the, in the indie music scene. And we were probably one of 20 or 30 bands that, that could make it, you know, that could break. Uh, and a lot of bands broke out of that scene. Um, that uh, that went on to become you know massive bands. Uh, Green Day came out of that scene, and Counting Crows came out of that scene, and Train, and Third Eye Blind, and Chris Isaac, and um, those were all contemporaries of ours. And we were playing in the same venues, and and playing you know doing shows and and so forth, and um, together and and all that. So so there was there was. Um, there was enough there to say, well, yeah, you know, it could break. It's broken for a lot of other bands that, you know, have opened up for us or we've opened up for them or whatever. And, and so we're, we're in the mix, we're in the running, but what happens if it doesn't work? And, um, 
I had to start, you know, by 26, 27, I had to start really considering that. And then my father got uh, terminally ill with cancer and he passed away and he and I were very close and it was, that was really hard for me. And uh, my dad didn't like the music career, but he, uh, you know, idea, but he always supported me in that. And I, and I was always really grateful to him for the fact that, that he knew what the odds were. And he wasn't, he, he hated rock and roll. He was a jazz guy. And, and, but he, but he, he said, Jeff, you got to chase your passion, whatever you do, you have, it ha- you have to chase your passion and the rest of it will work itself out. So go chase that. And if it doesn't work, it'll transi- transition into something else. So, you know, that was kind of floating around in the back of my head. And, and, you know, my mom has this need, this, this vineyard needs to be looked after. And then shortly after my dad passed away, the vineyard gets hit with phylloxera and we've got to pull it out. My mom wanted to sell the property. She had no interest in being in the wine business. And, um, and here's her 26, 27 year old kid with no experience in this coming to her and saying, Hey, this is a great idea. We should do this. And, and, you know, yeah, I know that it's going to, you know, require a lot of capital to replant the vineyard, but let's do it. And, you know, let's, let's create this wine. And, <laughs> and she's just like, wow, there's so much involved in this. And, and, you know, this is a pretty risky proposition. So she, she was cold to the idea. I mean, at first she just said, no, um, you don't have, you don't have the experience to do this. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw um, a whole bunch of money at something that hasn't been well thought through. And so if you have any interest in wanting to pursue this thing, then you better start doing your homework and come back when you have a a thoughtful plan that, you know, that I can, that I can buy off on Um, until then the answer is no. And so, you know, I, I kind of take a step back and like, all right, what, what am I going to do here? I, I, I think that the music thing, I could do music for another 10 years and I might be in exactly the same spot that I'm at right now. And then what do I do? You know, 15 years, 20 years of, of chasing a music career um, that didn't work out doesn't necessarily read well on a resume. And so uh, I thought, all right, well, let's let's put some time and energy into this thing and see if we can, if we can organize it. I, if I'm going to do something other than music, it's got to be really creative because that's, that's what I love about music is the, is the creativity part of it. And so I've got to scratch that itch as much as I can. And I thought, you know, listen, the wine business is pretty dynamic. It's pretty creative. If if I'm not going to do music, maybe, maybe that'll scratch all of the itches that I need. And, and, and maybe this could be a, a good replacement for, uh, for music in terms of, of creativity. So I thought, okay, I got, I got to get my mom over the hump on this. So I, I went to a friend of mine who was at that time in the master's program at UC Davis, a guy by the name of Kelly Marr, who has gone on to become one of the top viticulturalists in our industry. At that time, he was still in school and he was studying, studying viticulture and he was the protege student of Dr. Cleaver, who's the dean of, of Viticulture at UC Davis, and one of the top two or three microclimate specialists in the world. And I said, you know, Kelly, is there any way you could get Dr. Cleaver to come and give us a side evaluation? Mom wants to sell a property, and I gotta, I've got to map this out and come up with a strategy on how this could work. And I think she'd probably listen to somebody like Cleaver. She's really influenced by academics. She went to Cal. She's uh, smart lady and, and, um, she's rational. And and I think if I can put a rational plan on the, on the, on the table that, that maybe I could stand chance of, 
convincing her not to sell a property. And so Kelly delivered. He he got Dr. Cleaver to come down from UC Davis and spend an afternoon with me and walk the property and do all the things you do to evaluate a vineyard site. And and when he was done, he said, uh, Jeff, I I think your I think your your dad was really really lucky. He he acquired what I think is going to become one of the signature Cabernet sites of Napa Valley. And I was like, wow, holy crap. Wow, i got to introduce you to my mom. Like, you guys need to talk. <laughs> and so um, I'm like, Dr. Cleaver, that, that, that's a high bar. I'm like, I'm, all I'm looking for is it's not going to suck, okay? And, <laughs> and so now we have, now we have this new, new bar. This, I'm intrigued. Like, tell me more. Why, why is that? And, you know, he, he talked a lot about the uniqueness of the soils and this, that, and the other. But the one thing that he said that was, that was amazing, actually, um, is he said, Jeff, you've lived here all your life, but you've probably not considered that Napa Valley is more or less shaped like an hourglass. And your hillside vineyard defines the pinch or the narrow crossing. It's a completely unique feature of geography that you have, nobody else in Napa Valley has it. And um, this is gonna do something interesting and special with this site. And I didn't hear a word he said after that. He talked a lot about what the what that geographical dynamic might mean, uh, but I didn't hear that. What I heard was hourglass. And I thought, oh my God, what a great name. And names are so, incredibly difficult. Um, as, as you know, I mean, companies spend, you know, enormous amounts of time, energy, money, and so forth on naming projects. And, and, and to hear this name just sort of welled up from a conversation. And what I thought was cool about, I mean, there were a bunch of things I thought were cool about it, but what I thought was really amazing was that the name was a function of the geography. And in wine, Wine is a reflection. The personality of wine is a reflection of its place. This, this concept of sense of place is so important relative to wine that the personality of wine is directly related back to that specific site and what the unique characteristics of that specific site are. And that specific site is different than the one next door or the one down the street or whatever. You take the same plant material and you plant it at you know, multiple sites and you're going to get a different expression, different personality from that wine. And here the name is a function of the geography. It's a function of this site. And I thought that's really, really powerful. And so the story of Hourglass is a story of this unique site. And now the name is tied directly back to the story, which is tied directly back to the site, which ultimately will be tied directly back to the expression and the personality of the wine. And I thought that is, that, that just never happens. That's unbelievable. And so I was incredibly excited about that. I, I eventually sat and talked to Cleaver a little bit more about the technical aspects of why he thought that site was so special. And there are some really unique things that we've uncovered over the years of farming it. There's a thermal dynamic there um, because of the constriction of the two mountain ranges that bottlenecks air in the late afternoon when it's, when it's hot and it cools that site down. It has an enormous impact on balancing grape chemistry. 
And that balanced grape chemistry is, is critical to the personality of that wine. And so Cleaver was right in, in that regard. And, and it took us a while to figure that out. But um, the, 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 the fact that the, that the concept of Hourglass sort of sprung out of this conversation with Dr. Cleaver, just because I was trying to figure out how to con my mom <laughs> into saying yes. Yes, to the project. <laughs> no, I mean, and it's so obvious to see the creative in you and, and thinking the, that actual time. And when you hear the word hourglass, you can just you can see the light bulb kind of go off for you as you tell that story. So, I mean, at that point, it seems like you're able to convince mom. So what are next steps for you? Obviously, you had never done this before. So how do you even get this massive project off the ground after meeting with Dr. Cleaver? Yeah, so it didn't start as a massive project, uh, which was really helpful because if it had, I think again, kind of going back to that um, that 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 idea of of uh, you know risk and and um, an effort and so forth. Fortunately, we started this as a, I mean, it was massive to me emotionally, and and it was um, there was it was not insignificant relative to the upfront capital that the family had to put in to make it happen. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't a well organized thing at this point, so there wasn't there wasn't nearly as much risk as there were in later moves that we made, like when we acquired the Blue Line Estate um, in 2006. Um, that was big capital and um, really big outcomes swung on the decision of, of making that. So in the earlier stages, I had the benefit and the fortune of not having um, a lot on the line other than, you know, wanting to, to keep the, the property in the family. And so we get the, we get the, the kind of the nod, the, 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 the approval from Dr. Cleaver that this site had, had potential. And it turned out he was, he was right. Um, and then, and then I had to continue to sort of organize the whole effort moving forward. And, and the next piece of the puzzle was winemaking, because at that time, I, I didn't know how to make wine. And so I had to kind of figure that piece out. And mom said, okay, you're over the first hurdle. I'm, I'm interested. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say yes, but um, I'm, I'm not going to say no just yet. I think you earned yourself another round. So you got to figure out, <laughs> you got to figure out what the what the winemaking piece of this is going to be and how that's all going to knit together. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll figure that out. And I had played in a rock band with a guy by the name of Bob Foley in the mid eighties. And Bob um, had not yet exploded into sort of rock star vintner winemaker status. Um, he was about to, and um, he was a terrifically creative guy is a terrifically creative guy. And, um, and, and I had this really good relationship with him and my, father had had some business dealings with him and really liked him a lot. And, and my mom did. So there's a, there was kind of this family connection there that was, that was really nice. And I had been invited by Bob to go barrel taste with him before we, before we hired him, he had taken a job at pride mountain, which in 1990, I think his first vintage was 91, 92. It was right around the time that, that I'm having these conversations with my mom. And, um, he'd asked me to come up and, and, and check out what he's doing, this new project that he's working on. And so I went up and barrel tasted with him and I was completely blown away by what I was tasting out of barrel. I, I had never tasted wine like this before. And I, I just couldn't believe what I was tasting. And 
as it turns out, um, Bob would end up becoming one of the architects of a really important paradigm shift in winemaking in Napa Valley. And he was just in the early stages of, of forming his thoughts and, and techniques and, and style uh, relative to this sort of modernism approach that he and he and a, I don't know, probably a dozen other game changer winemakers in Napa Valley would eventually usher in. And that would that would go on to kind of launch the cult wine movement and um, and redirect winemaking style, not only in Napa Valley, but maybe in the world. And wine hadn't been made in this way um, anywhere, but possibly Chateauneuf um, in in southern France. Um, but wine had been made in a very different way. And Bob would would ultimately be one of these game changer um, guys. And 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 I, I was just I didn't know it at the time. I just knew this wine tasted different than anything I'd tasted before. And and it was incredibly dynamic. And and I thought, God, I, I again, I got to be part of this. This is this is really exciting. And Bob's one of the guys and I've got a great working relationship with him. So I asked him if he'd be our consulting winemaker. And and he said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do that. So um, now I've got the vineyard kind of figured out. We've got to replant it, but we've got the prescription on how to do that. I've got my winemaker organized and, and ready to roll. And, um, and at that point, I think mom was like, well, all right, you know, this kid, is trying hard. He's working hard. He's, he's got some answers. You know, there's probably a lot that he doesn't know and a lot that he, he isn't, he hasn't figured out. And the one thing that I, the one thing that I would develop in short order is the business sales marketing side of things. And my dad was an entrepreneur and he was very open with his business dealings. And I had um, just gotten a um, sort of an MBA from my dad in, in many respects relative to um, how to organize business thoughts. And and then I didn't know it at the time, but all of the um, all of the work that I had done in music, um, that's that's probably the most formative elements that have inspired and, and pushed forward my business skills is um, organizing the organization of the creative mind and how to um, how to channel that energy in a way. I mean, everything that I did in launching a band I've used in launching a wine. So um, what does a band look like? For example, you know, I've spent tons of time trying to craft the image of the band and, you know, what clothes we were wearing and what our stage looked like and um, what visuals we had, and what our graphics were, what our posters looked like and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's all part and parcel to graphic design for a label or, for marketing materials or for, you know, a video piece or something like that. Um, the look and the feel, um, how to, how to craft that look and feel was directly related back to what I'd learned in, in, in launching a band. And what does a band sound like? You know, what is the sonic delivery of the band and what does the wine taste like? Um, you know, those, those two things, the mediums are different, but the, but the thought process behind how you organize them um, conceptually is pretty similar. And so um, everything that I had, that I'd come across in, in the music world, I, I remember 
remember giving a tour at Robert Mondavi very early on and walking through the winery and seeing all the blending tanks and all of the piping that connected all of the blending tanks together. And I thought, this just looks like that. This looks like a mixing console to me for, for sound mixing. It's, you know, what's the difference between mixing sound and mixing wine? You, you're, you're looking for harmonic resonance. You're looking for texture. You're looking for um, an exponential delivery of the sum of the parts being more than the individual performance. Um, all of that is all of that's true in winemaking, and and it all so theoretically. And again, the mediums are different, but and the techniques are different, but the but the theory is 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 it's pretty similar. So organizing the thoughts around all of that stuff had been sort of worked out in my mind relative to music, and now I needed to apply that on the business side. And so I had also, um, but that's in that same time. There's a lot of overlap here, but in that same time frame, I. I need, I knew that I, you know, this wine thing was not going to pay the rent. It was going to be probably seven or eight years before I had a marketable product. I've got to re, um, replant the vineyard, which is a, about a five-year process to get to um, full yields. Uh, you, get, you get your first yield in the third year, but, but it's a small yield. And by the fifth year, you've got, you know, you've got your, um, your full yield. And I figured there'd be some, you know, vintages in the early stages that, that probably wouldn't be marketable or whatever. And then it takes you a couple of years to, for red wines to, to make that wine, to barrel age it, to bottle it, and get it ready for marketing and so forth. So, you know, it's going to be a seven year, at best case, probably a seven year turn before I could actually have something that was marketable. And we we're going to start small. And I knew that that wasn't going to sustain me anyway. So I've got to pay the rent in that period of time. So um, I ended up through a really lucky, interesting sequence of events, getting a job at Sky Vodka um, in San Francisco. And I was the second employee there. And they, they knew nothing about beverage alcohol, how to market it, how to present it, how to you know grow it, how to do anything. And so, and I, I didn't know much more than they did, but I, but I had this intuition for it and had a feel for it. And so I really cut my teeth um, from a business standpoint, learning sales and marketing and business um, you know, sort of more fundamental business practices in a trial by fire environment at Sky Vodka. So we, I, I was responsible for creating the Cobalt Blue Bottle, which became an iconic um, thing in, in that industry. And and I built all of Sky's national distribution network from the ground up. And um, that we didn't launch in the original Cobalt Blue. We had a we had a really funky package that we launched, and it was terrible. And all, the, the name was great. The story was great. The, the, um, the product was great, but, um, but the packaging was terrible and it was the missing link and all of that. And so long story short, I, I was able to convince, um, the owner of the company to repackage in the cobalt blue. And it, and it turned out to be the thing that just rocketed it. So uh, the first year I sold about 140 cases of product in the old package. The second year, I sold about 6,000 cases, almost all of that in the fourth quarter after, after um, we had transitioned to the cobalt blue bottle. And then it got really interesting. So the next year, the third year in, I did 200,000 cases. And the next year, I did 400,000 cases. The next year, I did 600,000 cases. It was the fastest rise in the history of American distilled spirits, as far as I can, I can tell. 
Um, and the following year, I think we did a million cases. And, um, and that was done on a completely, absolutely entrepreneurial um, environment. There was zero infrastructure. And it was just a bunch of, it was a, an owner who was a little disconnected and, uh, and a couple, um, couple guys in their late twenties, early thirties that went out and, and made the magic and, and built it. And that was a, an unbelievable ride. And that was going on sort of in parallel to the development of Hourglass. And that's what, that's what I paid my rent with. And I didn't, didn't gain any equity in that business. The owner was kind of old school and he, he wasn't into um, having um, these young guys, you know, giving young guys equity and so forth. Very, very counter to the way that, that a lot of Northern California, especially high-tech businesses operated that would pay, you know, young employees with stock options and so forth. That wasn't, that wasn't his bag. So Unfortunately, I had no equity in that business, and after about five years, um, I had learned what I needed to learn, and now it was time to move on. And so, uh, so I did, and, and did a couple other entrepreneurial things in the time that Hourglass was kind of getting off the ground. Failed miserably at two uh, at two businesses, which was ultimately really good for me. Um, it was painful at the time, but um, you learn a lot more, I think, in your failures than you do in your successes, and those kind of wound into sharpening up and tightening up my my perspective on how to wind together a successful business and kind of simplify things down and and focus down and target things a little bit more and um and so all of that stuff kind of flashed and congealed all in my late 20s early 30s and that was a a very ramped period of transition for me to go from, um, you know, playing, playing in a band to, um, being associated with successful businesses and unsuccessful businesses for that matter. I mean, it's so funny hearing about all the culminations of of the different industries you took part in and how you were able to kind of mold and blend those together to to help give you as much experience and help make you and and Hourglass successful. You mentioned your creative process and and the inner creative that you are. Do you have a specific routine to really tap into that creative side? Um, Not that I'm consciously aware of. It's possible that uh, there is sort of an inner structure that I'm less consciously aware of. Um, I do, I do know that there are, there are two sides of my professional life and they're, they're sometimes at odds with each other. So there's the creative side, which is, you know, more of the right brain, um, subconscious intuition, uh, side of things. And then there's the then there's the daily operations of the business, and that's left brain, very structured, um, very not formulaic, but um, but structured. And the structure sometimes um, gets in the way of the intuitive side of of business. So, in order for me to be really creative, I have to disassociate myself for periods of time from the structural elements of how my daily life works and or the daily business life works and that's often really hard to do because the the demands of the day when you've got staff and you've got partners and you've got um you know 
life coming at you fast and and <laughs> it's a hyper competitive industry that we're in um you've got mother nature who's this not so silent partner that you've got to deal with in your business affairs uh you can't turn your back on that um and so there's a there's a lot coming at you from a from an entrepreneurial standpoint i'm a i'm kind of a bootstrapper so um i've never had um you know, thick, deep resources to, to draw from. So we, we run a pretty lean operation. Um, and, and I like that. And there's things about that that are incredibly powerful. We're nimble. We can move quickly. We can, um, we can, we can function profitably. And there are a lot of people in the wine business who cannot function prof- profitably. And uh, so those are the advantages that we have of being of, of having that kind of bootstrapping mentality and and that sort of the entrepreneurial scrappiness and so forth. Um, but but that also means that it's all hands on deck and sort of keep the ship kind of pointed in the right direction. Um, my fingerprints are all over the business in every aspect from taking the garbage out to you know creating the next great idea and. Um, and sometimes those things can run at odds with each other. So to unlock the creative process, I have to sometimes disassociate with the structural running operations of the day. And that's a really hard thing for me to do. I, 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 I have, if I have anything that I struggle with, it's that dynamic of pulling out of the, of the daily chaos to get into that place where the creative juices can flow. And they almost always flow better when, when all of that, that you know, structural right brain stuff is put off to the side for some period of time. And, and you kind of have to fight for that. You have to fight for that time. And, you know, it's, it's also I, I have to fight with myself for it because, because I often think, well, the structural stuff is what makes, you know, what pays rent every day. And, um, I got to mind that I got to, I got to stay on that. And, and, and it's a luxury to be able to get out into this creative space. And, and there's always something coming at you that's taking you away from getting into that creative space. And so you really have to work at it, or I have to work at it to get into that space. And, and I don't always give myself the, the green light or the nod to say, you know, don't, don't answer email for a day and, and don't pick up your phone. And, um, the, the problems of the day, the challenges of the day uh, can wait another day. Nobody's, nobody's going to die, um, you know, that you didn't call them right back or that you didn't answer the email right away, or, you know, you've got to be able, I've got to be able to fight hard to create that buffer, to create the space where I can then be creative. And that's where the magic starts to flow. So it's an interesting dynamic that way. Yeah, I mean, it's that conundrum. If, if you don't have that free space and that creativity to really accelerate the business, then then all the the logistical structure and everything doesn't seem to matter as much. You mentioned when you actually do afford yourself the time, are you playing music? Are you going for walks? Are you just hanging out in the office? How do you actually get those juices going? Yeah, I, I tend to, um, I tend to, I happen to live in one of those beautiful places in the world, which is kind of crazy. You'd think, um, you know, how can you not be inspired every day just walking out your front door? And and um, there's a lot of truth to that. But um, the, because of the structural elements of the business being here, um, 
Napa is Napa Valley is not as inspiring inspiring to me uh, as it would be for a lot of other people coming here. So I need to actually physically leave. And I've, I've found I've found some some places. I, I do think that there, that places have resonance. Like there are certain places that that will unlock you. And and it's probably different for everybody. But um, I I like to get out to the coast. Um, I like to get out to West Marin and uh, or down to Big Sur. It's a little harder to get down there for me because it's about a three hour, three and a half hour drive with traffic. It could be five hours, six hours. Um, so, you know, being able to get over to the coast, I can do that in an hour, an hour and a half. Um, there's some really great places near Tamales Bay, Inverness and, and so forth, Point Reyes that we love to go and hang out and my wife and I and We'll just go out there and try to leave the the cell phone, you know, turned off and and the the, the um, computer off, and and I can get out there and and it, and it really is a different energy and it really does unlock me in in different ways. And I can write when I'm there, which is great. Um, I can conceive, I can uh, come up with different ideas and 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 so forth. And and I've got it, you know, a couple times a year, I like to go over there for, for a few days and just kind of let it all go. So you mentioned when you kind of get that time to yourself and you're writing, are you using a notebook, you journaling, are you kind of mapping out ideas for the business? Or are you just kind of putting out any general idea you might have? Yeah, so um, I, I will uh, create um, kind of you know, not notepads. I, I actually will turn my computer on for that specific purpose. <laughs> I, try, I, I train myself not to look at email, <laughs> but uh, but I but I but I'll take notes. Um, I write. I um, I come up with ideas um, and just try to capture them all. And 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 it's it's really good with that stuff to just let it free flow and and capture it. I've learned not to try to. Um, guide that process, um, but just be open and let it waterfall. And whatever comes out, comes out. And, and I'll organize the, you know, the, the more left brain stuff that I'll do is to come back and edit and organize that stuff later. But when I'm in that creative space, I'm trying to uh, just let everything kind of flow on paper and just capture it in its most raw uh, form. And then, and then I make sense of what just came out um, once I get more organized. There, there are times when it'll come out as an organized thought and, and a form thought that's, that's, that's usable in, it, in, its, in its raw state. But a lot of this stuff needs to be thought through again and, and kind of polished up and and, and restructured and repurposed and, and, uh, and so forth. So there's sort of a staged approach to that. I mean, how many of these ideas are entirely outside of the wine industry? Uh, I feel like you must have entrepreneurial ideas just kind of flowing through your head at all times. You know, um, yeah, there, there are plenty of things that, um, that flow through my head relative to non-wine um, elements. Sometimes I'll, sometimes I'll write, you know, lyrics for a song or, or I'll get a chord structure. Sometimes I'll bring a guitar along. Sometimes I won't. Um, it, so that, so that, you know, there's still, music is still, you know, sort of hardwired in me. And, um, unfortunately I don't have the time. It, music takes quite a bit of time, um, for me to organize it in a way like to, to, com to write a song, start to finish, I'll usually do it in fragments. Um, there's some writers that just, 
right, you know, and then it just comes out as a formed idea. And, and I've never really been one of those musicians. I'm usually is comes out in, in, um, in, um, segments. And so I'll get a, I get a hook or I'll get a chord structure or I'll get something that's interesting. And then I, then I have to kind of weave it together with other pieces and kind of figure out what works and what doesn't work. Kind of a, um, um, uh, kid of parts sort of approach. And, uh, so, um, I, you know, I may, I may get these fragments of ideas and so forth. And, and, I, and the, the thing that's challenging to me is I just don't have the time now to put into music, to be able to, to finish all that. One of, one of the things that I really would love to do is to go back and record a lot of music that I've written over the years that, um, that, that that's in fragment form or, or, uh, were completely formed, um, songs that, that never got recorded and, and so forth. I've got a lot of that stuff in my head and I'd love to be able to take the time to be able to do that. And it's just right at this stage in my life, um, is, uh, is, is not really an option, but you know, at some point I, I may get to that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always interested. I, I, I studied diplomacy actually. And, and so I, I read a lot. I, they reasonably attuned to politics and, and think a lot about that. I, I do get involved also in, in charitable organizations. So I'm always trying to use the creativity in terms of the charitable organizations that I'm involved with and, uh, and so forth. But right now, most of that activity is, is funneled against wine related um, business opportunities and so forth. Yeah, no, I love hearing about the creative process and, and just how different brains and different industries work. And I want to tie this in back to wine. And could we uncover your 97 vintage, both how that put you guys on the map? And then you have an awesome story, uh, how you guys thought you lost the five barrels. I would love if you could share that for the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we get the, I get the green light from my mom to go ahead. We replant. Uh, we replant the Cabernet Sauvignon, the little four acres. Um, Bob's on board, and we get a we get a um, a little bit of a crop in '96. Um, the wines the wine that we made was not really a marketable wine, so we we kind of tossed that. And um, and then '97 was the first vintage that that we actually were like, okay, this is the vines are are settled in. We've got a normalized crop. Um, we were only getting a certain percentage of it. We were selling the fruit to Duckhorn in the early stages, and we would keep back. We would keep a little bit back for experimental purposes. So Bob was working on these experimental lots to try to figure out, you know, kind of what the vineyard's all about and how the wines are going to come together. Selling the fruit off to Duckhorn, the, the balance of the fruit off to Duckhorn, and so um, we made our, our first marketable vintage is 1997, and we made five barrels of wine, which is about 150, no, I'm sorry, it was seven, I think it was seven barrels of wine. It was about 150 cases worth of total wine. And um, Bob's got it. Um, Bob's got the barrels at Pride, and we custom crushed it there. And he's sort of looking after the the barrels uh, through the barrel aging and so forth. And about a year and a half goes by, Maybe maybe almost two years. We're getting you know toward the tail end of the aging cycle, and Bob calls me and he said, "Jeff, I got some I got some really bad news. I feel terrible about this, but um, I can't find the five barrels of hourglass." 
<laughs> just what you want to hear right <laughs> is it come again <laughs> uh he goes he goes jeff i i feel horrible i i i don't i he said i think what has happened is that those five barrels just ended up getting incorporated in one of the pride blends when we were bottling and I was like, well, all right, you know, stuff happens. I, I get it. That's, that's, you know, it's not the end of the world. And, you know, we had nothing really riding on this at that point. Those lots were experimental. Um, I, I didn't, I wasn't sure whether we were going to have a marketable product at all to, to, you know, that those experiments would actually translate into a marketable product. So I didn't really have, we didn't have any skin in the game, so to speak. And, and I thought, well, okay, it's a, an experiment that didn't work, and and we'll check down to the next vintage, and that's that. And you know, I, I wasn't going to go back to Bob and you know say, well, you know, you owe me for five barrels of wine, and and so I just I was like, well, you know, okay, Bob, that, that happened. Let's try not to make that happen. You know, have that happen next year, and we'll we'll pick it up where we left off and move on. I mean, this is a this is a long term thing we're doing here, and um, so we'll start a year later. That was kind of the the attitude that, that we took and it was like, okay, great. And so I, I would, I think it was, and it was another year later. So now this would be, we're pushing three years. No, a normal barrel aging cycle is 22 to 24 months. So we're, we're now well past what a normal barrel aging cycle would be. And I, I get a call from Bob and he says, Hey Jeff, I, I, I'm really excited. I, I got, I got some good news. And I said, yeah, uh, what's up? And he goes, I found the five barrels. And I'm like, what are you talking about? What five barrels? He goes, the first five barrels, the, the five barrels of 1997 hourglass. I found them. And I'm like, huh? You did? Where? <laughs> <laughs> he said, he said, we, um, we we pushed they they we they got a whole bunch of um, pride barrels stacked on top of them and the barrels were turned around so the the um, the 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 um, the stickers on them that said hourglass 1997 were turned face back and then all of these other pride barrels got got um, stacked up on top of them. And so we'd go back in and we'd look at our different lots and we just thought it was one of the, it was part of the, one of the pride lots. And then when we got in there with a forklift and we pulled all the barrels out because we're getting ready to bottle them, we see the five barrels with the 97 hourglass markings on them. And we're like, oh, these are Jeff's wines. Holy, holy mackerel. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Bob, that's really cool. Right on. I'd already written it off. And uh, he said, even more importantly, you need to get up here and taste these wines. These are terrific. I mean, this is five really killer barrels of wine. Come get get up here and, and check it out. So I did. I went I went up there and we tasted out a barrel and I was like, oh my God, wow, this this wine is really unique and really good. And so we ended up um the we ended up bottling those up and 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 we had a kind of a storybook launch uh, around that 1997 vintage that uh, that put us on the map and 
And so it was kind of, kind of a fun little side story about how we got started. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that story. How many bottles of the 97 do you guys still have? Uh, we have, I think I probably got about 60 bottles in my cellar and probably less than that in the Arbaugh cellar. And, and we just had one about two or three weeks ago. We just had one and it was showing incredibly beautiful. Uh, it was just, I mean, 21 years old and still with a ton of life left in it and, it's um, the 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 Arbas wines age really well. There there's a little higher acid in those wines because it's a cooler site, and um, they the structure of the wines at at Arbas because it's a, a cooler site um, promotes long term ageability. And and those those wines are 97, 98, 99, 2000. Those wines are still incredibly vibrant, very fresh very pure fruit flavors. They have the, what we refer to as the tertiary characteristics of age. So tertiary are kind of the secondary uh, or the, the um, later developing aromatics and, and um, flavor profile that come with age. So at about year seven from the vintage date, um, the wines will begin to, transform into age one. So they, they add these secondary and, and more complex exotic aromatics, a lot, a lot more kind of wood tones, things like cedar and cigar box and saddle leather. And, um, and, and they, they're a little less about the, the floral and pure fruit aromas. Um, although those are still present. Um, and then they add this kind of extra band of complexity aromatically. And then, what we're finding is these wines in this more modern style will um, start to compress a little bit at, at, at that seven-year inflection point. And it's a little different depending upon the vintage and the chemistry of the wine, but seven years is a pretty good, pretty good jumping off point. And so the wines, what I call, they lose their baby fat. So they, they become a little less um, round on the palate and a little less fruit forward. And they uh, compress down and become a little more narrow and a little sleeker on the palate. And they, <clears throat> I think of them more vertically oriented rather than horizontally oriented. So the, the horizontal aspect is kind of the width across your, your tongue or your palate. They, they, they narrow in a little bit, but they add more vertical layers to them. So they become more complex and there are more nuances and, added little flavors, but they, but they also have this incredibly pure fruit characteristic. And that pure fruit characteristic is, is a defining element of Napa that is hard for other regions in the world to replicate. And, um, you know, these, the older Napa wines that have been cellared properly, they're made well and cellared properly tend to have this expression of pure fruit. That's, that's really, uh, compelling and, and, and so then the wines also kind of have a longer finish than they would as, as younger wines. Um, so they become more subtle, more interesting, more layered. And um, it's, it's pretty fun to, to check, check those out as they, as they gain a little age. 
yeah, I'd have to imagine that's a pretty fun evening, uh, uncorking a few of those. And there's so much about the vineyard and about your history I'd love to uncover. I think we're gonna have to do a round two, but I'd love finishing up with more of just a couple quick hit questions and talking about the 97. I'm sure that's an incredibly special bottle. What's the most memorable bottle of wine you've ever opened? The most memorable bottle of wine I've ever opened. There are a few, but I, I, I have a quick answer for you on that. Um, it's the 1969 Chapelet Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, clearly the best red wine that I've ever had. And I've had it a couple of times very recently. It's a legendary wine. Um, it's one of the most iconic wines ever made in Napa Valley. It's very, very difficult to come by. Um, and it's also now become very expensive. Um, but it is, um, it's a transcendent wine. It, it, uh, is everything that you would ever want in a bottle of wine from Napa Valley. And it has all of the characteristics of a, uh, compelling, complex, intriguing, um, bottle of wine with, um, incredibly pure fruit. And it's still, I mean, to this day still has, um, it still has this purity of fruit that is just striking. And, and then all of these exotic layers and, and points of intrigue and so forth. And I've had it, I've had it twice in the last couple of years. In fact, I, I, I spoke about it um, and introduced um, one of the wine critics, uh, very influential wine critics, Antonio Bologna, uh, to it. Um, I think it was two years ago we had a tasting and I brought a bottle for him to check out. And he went crazy about it. And he wrote a lot about it. And he went and interviewed the winemakers and so forth. And, and it just blew up. And, and uh, so the Chapelets, were, who are good friends of ours, were really excited that that, that happened. And so they they called me. Uh, this is their 50th, this is the Chapelet's 50th anniversary this year. And, and they called me up and they said, Hey, um, we're going to open a bottle of 69. Um, and we would love for you to come up and enjoy it with us. So, uh, I think it's the 15th of September. I'm going to go get a chance to try that one one more time. Wow. I, I spoke to Cyril Chapelet about that and about uncorking the 69. So for, for him to invite you up to that, uh, that's pretty memorable and speaks to the relationship you guys have. So that's pretty cool to hear about that. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. So I, I'm curious, you finish up a tour at Hourglass, where are you going to dinner that evening and what are you going to order? Um, so it depends on my mood, um, where I'm going to go. Hmm, I'm going to go, I'm going to, Brave the traffic because you you know this is a this is a once once in a lifetime dinner I suppose. Yep. I'm gonna I'm gonna brave the traffic and I'm gonna drive down to State Bird Provisions in San Francisco, and I'm gonna have um, uh, an older bottle of Demanda Romani Conti that I cannot afford. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to be able to pay my mortgage for about six months, but it's going to be worth it. Damn it. (laughs) Oh, that is fantastic. So one final question before we link the listeners up with you and they can discover more about hourglass. Are you guys going to be acquiring any more property? That's a, that's a, a, it's an interesting thought right now. Uh, The two estate vineyards, we've got the hourglass estate, the blue line estate, uh, both of them that are sort of at their mature capacity right now. And so we're beginning to look around um, for other interesting things to be able to do. And um, so the answer is um, quite, quite possibly. 
Oh, I certainly hope you guys do. I love, love what you guys have done at Blue Line since 06, and we'll definitely have to talk about that uh, in round two. But I can't thank you enough for coming on. Where can the listeners best stay connected with Hourglass Wine? Sean, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, and uh, I'm, I'm happy to, to chat anytime you like. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jeff. Have a great weekend. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.